Pray with me. Lord, we agree with those lyrics that you are strong and mighty, and we, uh, we cling to that truth right now together on, on another Sunday morning where we want to remember your work, your work on this earth through Jesus to save our souls, but your work even in our life now through your Holy Spirit as you give us peace even when times are difficult. Lord, I, I have a couple families in my mind right now that I, I just, just talked to that have Oh, just, just some really tough stuff going on. And we pray as we, we claim that you're strong and mighty that you would come in as a comforter for them, give them peace, and even show them your strength in this time where uh, they really feel weak. So uh, we trust you with that now, Lord. We thank you for your word, for the way it guides us, particularly for this book of Mark that captures the truths about your son, Jesus. And Father, we're thankful for the way Jesus makes it so apparent to us who you are and how you would have us live. So we trust you with these few minutes together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been a little bit of a heavy day with, with uh, multiple families, just with some really difficult times. So it's really cool to be a part of a body where we can get together even now online and pray for one another. So. I can't name these names yet, but maybe, maybe sometime this afternoon, take a minute and just, just remember the folks you know that are, that are struggling. I mean, COVID is, is, had this crazy effect on a bunch of us emotionally. Some folks are kind of coming up out of that emotional doldrum. Some folks still caught in it. And then we have just normal stuff that's happening in life where uh, families have been broken and uh, we've had a few folks lose a loved one here in the last few days. And so trust you as you pray for others and, and we as a family help one another spiritually deal with, deal with difficult days and sometimes weeks and years. I was, uh, as I read this passage, uh, you'll laugh at me, but I, I was reminded of my favorite movie all the time, which is going to show that I am not that cultured. So I'm gonna name my top two to make me look a little bit better. My favorite movie of all time, Braveheart. I still remember the first time I saw it. It was on VHS. Some of y'all don't even know what that is. It had two VHSs, so I had to watch one at a time and put the other one in. And I was just floored by the movie. My second favorite movie is This Wonderful Life, which is a classic. And it's, it's beginning to overtake number one because it just keeps on giving every Christmas. But, but those two movies, are they're, they're both awesome in different ways. But my favorite scene in Braveheart is when William Wallace uh, is coming back into this little village uh, to avenge the death of his wife. Now, when, if you look it up on the internet, it'll actually say vengeance or something like that. I like to think of it more as justice because I'm a big William Wallace fan after seeing the movie, right? So, so just to watch the scene, if you pull it up on your computer, William Wallace, is, he's riding into the village and it actually shows him on his horse kind of peering through the trees, just really surveying where the soldiers are that took his wife's life. And so uh, he, you, you kind of like, you got it in your head because me as a young man, when I saw that the first time, I'm, I'm already angry at the at the tragedy of the, the uh, killing of his wife. And so he's coming through, and you can, you can almost feel his emotion as he's riding through. And then when the, when the horse and William Wallace finally come into view of all the folks in the village and, and the soldiers, he has this really crazy motion where he, 
he opens up his hands and he kind of leans back on the saddle of his horse as if to say, hey, I'm broken by what you did to my wife and I am here to die with her. And he, he rides in the slow motion, great music, right? All, all those things are happening. And then, then the soldier comes up and grabs the reins of his horse, and then they focus in on William Wallace's eyes, and he's got his hands out, and then he pulls them up to the back of his head like he's surrendering, and they focus in on his eyes, and his hands look like he's a lamb, but his eyes look like he's a lion. He's got his eyes fixed on this soldier right here, and then if you're, if you're a big fan of the movie, you know what happens next. He pulls out this weapon. I don't even know exactly what it's called, and he swoops it down on the soldier right there, and it is on, right? Like all of a sudden, this guy that looked like a lamb coming to a, slaw- to a slaughter turns into a lion and his fury. He, he busts off that horse and he takes one soldier after another after another. And he, in- he incites the enemy to come after him, but he also inspires the folks of the town to go to battle. And it, it is a battle. Right. And, and the, if you know the story, obviously they win this one battle and it, it be, thus the beginning of the legend of William Wallace. When I read this passage, I just kept on thinking of, of him riding in on that horse looking like a lamb. And yet he had the fury and the pride and the power and the skill and uh, all the things that he needed like a lion inside. And he just cuts it loose. So you read this passage. This is, if you know the Bible very well, it's Mark chapter 11. It's recorded in in all the gospels. And uh, Mark tells this story that we all call Jesus' triumphal entry. It's when Jesus, for the first time, really shows that he's a king. And he does it in a very unique way. Let me, let me read you a few verses, and we'll talk about them as we go. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two of them ahead. Go into the village over there, he told them, and as soon as you enter it, you will see a young, young donkey tied there, and no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and will return it soon. It's a pretty interesting <laughs> command. Jesus is a couple miles out of town, right? He sends two disciples in, and they're going to go take somebody else's donkey, right? A colt, a, a young donkey, and they're going to take it away. And all they're supposed to do, if, if anybody asks, say, the Lord told me to. You ever, you ever been in a situation like, like a donkey in those days, that's currency. Animals, up to, that's like taking money. That's like taking somebody's car in the parking lot. Hey, I'm just borrowing it. Like, <laughs> you left it on. I'm just borrowing it. Let me, let me drive it up the street. I promise we'll bring it back later. And clearly the Lord has orchestrated this. But it still is a really interesting uh, command to these two disciples. A lot of folks think that one of these two may have been Peter because of the details that he gives to the cult as he's probably telling Mark about how this thing went down. Verse four, the two disciples left and found the cult standing in the street and tied outside the front door and they were untying it and some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying the colt? I love this. I, I imagine Peter walking down the road with his hand on the colts, on a rope around the colt, whistling, because that's what I always do when I don't want to get caught. I whistle like I'm relaxed. <laughs> and these guys interrupt the whistling. And they're like, hey, why, why are you taking that colt? And in obedience, uh, they did exactly what Jesus said. 
They, they said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. Just really, really interesting picture. Like, it's got so many moving parts. You can't leave the colt out of the story. You've got to pay attention to this colt, this donkey colt that is uh, now Jesus is sitting on with garments over it as if he's a king. And yet, donkeys just don't feel like the kind of animal a king would ride, right? Like, like yeah, when, when you're, you're on, sitting on top of them, you're above everybody else, it makes a little sense, but it seems really confusing. Is Jesus a lion or is he a lamb? Let me read you a passage from the Old Testament. I don't know if you know how the Old Testament works, but it starts with a long narrative in Genesis and it rolls all the way to Nehemiah and Esther. It's a long portion of narrative. And then you got some poetry in the middle. It starts with Job and, and you get Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song Solomon, all of those, those great writings in the middle. And then you come into the prophets. They start with Isaiah and they roll all the way to the end of the Old Testament to Malachi. And you got this variety of prophets. Some of them wrote really long books and some of them wrote really short books. Zechariah's kind of medium. And he prophesies about this very instance far before Jesus ever comes on the scene. Here's what he says. This is Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's coat. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem, and I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. And his realm was stretched from sea to sea and from the Euphrates rivers to the end of the earth. Got this really interesting verse where Zechariah, far before the time of Jesus, writes this prophecy. He said, here's what's going to happen. Your king's going to come, Israel, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one just a few chapters ago, Peter calls the anointed one, calls him Messiah, the Christ. He's going to come and he's going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. And here it is. He's fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy. And what I love about Zechariah's prophecy is that it, it goes further and it, it just explains it. He's going to do this different than you ever expected, right? He's, gonna, he's going to change the world and the course of the world without going to battle, at least not in the way you thought he would, right? Because he says that, that uh, he'll remove the battle chariots and the war horses and the weapons, and he'll bring peace to the nations. So here comes the king of glory riding on a baby donkey into Jerusalem. And as you know, uh, the people who are with him begin to sing, right? They begin to celebrate. We call it Palm Sunday. Some of y'all are like, wait, you're preaching this too early because Palm Sunday is actually the, the week before the resurrection or Easter, right? Yeah, you're right. I'm preaching it too early, but we want to go through this whole section of Mark. So today's the day. And really what happens in Mark is it begins to accelerate, pointing to the cross and then to the resurrection. And it starts right here. What's pretty cool about Mark is that he took 10 chapters and we learned about the way Jesus lived. We see his miracles. We see things, some of the things that he says. And then these last six chapters, or about 40% of the book, he, he talks only about the last week of Jesus' life. All the gospels accentuate the last week of Jesus' life, which just should tell us we ought to know this story. 
We, we ought to know Palm Sunday to the resurrection. We ought to know it cold. We ought to be able to tell anybody about what Jesus did in the last week of his life. Verse 8, many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches, palm branches, and that they cut from the fields. And Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, praise God, or if you, you have an older translation, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in the highest heaven. That word, uh, Hosanna, kind of comes in English from the Greek word, which comes from a Hebrew word, which means, oh, save us now. Oh, save us now. Oh, save us now. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You, You actually can feel these folks probably many of his disciples following him in Jerusalem. Perhaps other folks are getting caught up in it. We don't know exactly how this thing went down, but for a moment, Jesus looks like a king. He's on a donkey. He doesn't look like a king, but he's got all these people, well, they're worshiping him. That looks like a king. It's so confusing. Is he a lion or is he a king? So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple after looking around carefully at everything. He left because it was late in the afternoon. And he returned to Bethany with the 12, 12 disciples. I want you to catch this. There's nothing haphazard about this. Jesus rides in on a donkey fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9. He allows folks to worship him on the way in. He's no longer telling people to hush that he's the Messiah. He wants the whole of Jerusalem to know that he's present. He marches straight into town, gets off the donkey at some point and goes to the temple and you can see him kind of like William Wallace peering in through the trees and looking at the way they worship at the temple. You imagine him coming right into to, uh, uh, the court of the Gentiles, which is the court outside of the temple. He walks into the court of the Gentiles and he examines it. And, and then, you, you know, you can go further in. There's the court of Israel and there's the holy place and a place where nobody can go, the holy of holies, inside, inside the walls. And so uh, he rides in. It kind of is confusing to me whether he's riding in as a lamb with his hands open or riding in as a lion with his hands ready to do battle. You skip a few verses, and you see him come back the next day, and he arrives back at the temple. He didn't do it the night before, perhaps, because the right people weren't there. Uh, But he comes back in the next day premeditated, right? Like premeditated anger. I wouldn't necessarily qualify it as rage, but instead righteous indignation, calculated anger, he comes back into the temple and he cuts loose. I always love this story because I like to see Jesus you know, being a little violent because the picture on the wall of my Sunday school class never looked like he could be. Here's what the scripture says. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. And he said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. This uh, pretty violent looking display. I imagine Jesus coming in very focused, 
very focused on what he wants to accomplish, not looking like he's in a rage and losing his mind, but flipping tables and making eye contact. And that eye contact came with the same authority that he did miracles with in other places. And, as he, and people just left. Right, the, the violence and the, the fury that was coming out of him, just people just, they left. And, and what that did was that it quieted this area in the temple called the court of the Gentiles. Well, if you know how this thing works, but the court of the Gentiles was designed for folks that weren't Jewish to come in and worship. And over time, what had happened was folks started making money in the court of the Gentiles. So they would bring all the animals in to sacrifice. They say on the week of the Passover, 255,000 lambs might be sacrificed. So there's, there's lamb everywhere. There's guys changing money. So you got three different types of currency. So the, you're trying to get it into Jewish currency. Man, you're bringing in there's all this chatter and noise and chaos. And Jesus is like, we designed the temple, we the Trinity designed the temple for the people of Israel so that they could be a light in the world. And we gave all this space, right, outside of the walls of the temple itself so that the Gentiles could come in and experience the living God. It should be quiet in here. It should be a place of worship. So if you're taking this in right now, when Jesus says, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, He's saying this was designed from the beginning for you because I, 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 99% of us are Gentiles. We're not Jewish. We're not God's chosen people. And he goes, I, but I designed the temple for everybody to worship. It's powerful. He wanted you to be able to worship. I thought as I examined it, just for me personally, uh, Jesus, Jesus came into the space where I worship where you worship. I'm not talking about one of our radius buildings, right? I'm not talking, I'm talking about your insides. Jesus called you, you the temple, right? He called this your temple. Is there anything in here that, it, that he would flip, that he would hit, that he would yell at? that he would stare down. Is there anything inside your soul or mind that needs to be flipped? Is there something on your computer that he would just absolutely hate and delete and destroy and maybe take your laptop and throw it off a building? Is there a person in your life that you need to get, get some space from that, that he just keeps telling you, you got to get space from that because you cannot worship because of that person in your life. Is there this thing, this thing that you love it can be round and catchable, right? It can be all sorts of things. It can be green and go in your pocket. It can be words from other people that just have you so distracted that you can't worship. Man, as we watch this and we're going to read another little passage and we're going to see what's wrong with these people and what they've done so wrong to pollute what God designed to be a place of deep and intimate worship with incredible amounts of reverence for God. Anything in your soul that Jesus would have his hands on, just flip it over in your face? It's Jesus of the Bible. I think he's doing that just straight up out of hatred for people? Absolutely not. Design the, the court of the Gentiles for the good of the people. They wanted Israel to be the place that 
everybody in the world looked to as the ultimate place. Jerusalem, the ultimate place of worship in the whole world. And they wanted folks to come in there and be able to experience. That's, that's how God designed the temple. Verse 18, when the leading priests and the teachers of religious law heard that what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teachings. It's this really interesting moment where you got Jesus acting like a lion, right? He's in the temple flipping tables. He's got the death, the death stare on some folks in there. And, and all the priests and the teachers can think of is he's hurting our pocketbooks. He's making us look bad. He's killing our reputation, and we're going to kill him. You think he did that on purpose? I'm positive that he did, right? He rolled into town on a donkey, Zechariah 9, wanted all of Jerusalem to know that he is accepting the claim that he is the Messiah. He walks into the temple so everybody can see in broad daylight at the perfect time so everybody would have to deal with him. He makes a monster scene, flipping over tables so that everybody has to deal with this, with truth <laughs> that they had lost their way, but he also is inciting them. He's ready. He's just five days away from the cross. He's flipping tables, and he's getting their attention so that they would walk him to the cross in just, just a few more hours, really. So he's a lion, but he's a lamb. There's a couple verses that divide those two stories. So we have, we have Jesus coming into town, the triumphal entry, and then we have him in the temple flipping tables. And in between there, there's, he, he's gone back in, in our world. We go back to the hotel and come back to town. And in his world, he went back to another little town outside of Jerusalem. And he's walking back to the temple to clear it. And on the way, he runs into this fig tree. I don't know if how you grew up, but I grew up in South Carolina in Anderson, and my grandmother had a fig tree in her yard, and she made fig preserves, and they were awesome. Right? Every time in the morning, she'd make that kind of dry toast with butter on it, and she'd pull out her fig preserves, and we put them on there. It had more sugar than figs in it, but, but it was awesome. I hadn't had that. Anybody got some? I love some. I hadn't had any of that in 20 years, right? So there's this fig tree, and Jesus walked up on it. Very normal in his culture to be able to go up to the tree and pull a fig off the tree when it's in season and have a little snack. So read this passage with me. Verse 12. The next morning they were leaving Bethany. Jesus was hungry, and he noticed the fig tree in full leaf a little way off. So we went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. And Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. Why is that little weird story where Jesus feels like he took out some anger on a fig tree in between these two stories, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and clearing the temple? I, I've been intrigued with that story all week. Uh, just to give you a little bit of, of uh, knowledge about how fig trees work, so in the early season, they'll leaf up, and oftentimes they have, one of the describers of it called it a nodule, which there's nothing about a nodule that sounds like it would taste good to me, but it would develop these little buds along with the leaves, and, and oftentimes the peasants would take the little buds off, and they'd snack on them. I don't, I don't know if it was like, you know, a Tootsie Roll or what, but they'd pull off that little bit of fruit, and they'd snack on them. So most likely, Jesus is going to the tree anticipating that it's going to have those little 
nodules, put buds on it. And when he gets there, there's none, but it's leafy. It looks like it's super healthy, but it doesn't have any fruit. It looks healthy, but it's really rotten on the inside. And so you, you can imagine it doesn't take a whole lot of uh, work on your part in your mind to imagine Jesus with his disciples right there saying, I, I, I want to use this little tree as a metaphor for what's about to go down, what went down yesterday and what's about to go down tomorrow. The nation of Israel that has been given so much by God from the time when they were called um, as sons of Abraham so many years ago when they were trusted with the law. They've been given the prophets, right, starting uh, with, with their superstar prophet Elijah and all the way through Isaiah and all the way to the end to Malachi. Been given all of this gift from God, including his holy temple that they're about to walk into. And they look right. They got leaves all over them, but there's just no, no fruit. And it, uh, it seems to anger the Lord. He looks like, he looks like a lion. <laughs> what I think is funny is that we read the story. Maybe it's because we're Americans. We feel bad for the fig tree, right? Like I, I get, like, man, why are you going to take out that on the fig tree? What, what did the fig tree do? Instead of being worried about that lion and wondering what that lion thinks about my life. What does he think about the church in the United States? What does he think about the church in the world? <laughs> so it's one thing to be a little wonder, why is Jesus taking this out on a fig tree? We can figure that out. We can ask him when we get there. But there's this very clear truth in here that he's examining us like he examined Israel, and he expects fruit, not just leaves. So this, this is most folks taking this in today or online. Really good time for you at home. Um, some of you have been home for months on end. Just examine your heart again. One of the things that you're missing right now is, is uh, you haven't been able to be in person, many of you, and, and so there's, there's a loss there. So there's, there's this deep check that you want to make that, that you're still producing fruit, that you're not just going through the motions. And for some of you, this, this will last a few more months and maybe longer than that because that's, that's the right decision for your family at this point. There's a few of you out there that, like, at this point, you've got to start wondering, am I making excuses to stay out of community? And if that's the case, you've got to evaluate that because that is going to cost you. There's this possibility that you uh, could be claiming to be fruitful, but uh, there's really no proof in the pudding anymore. Not because you're not showing up to a gathering. That's, that's not what fruit is. Fruit stuff that comes from the Spirit through us. And it impacts our radius. It's a great time just to, to check in and see how that works. So as I, I read this passage, I kept going back and forth. You, you see Jesus really acting like a lamb. And then in the next moment, you see him acting like a lion. And he seems really comfortable with us dealing with the difficulty of those two things being in one man. And so as I examined, I, asked, I had to ask myself, I'm supposed to look like Jesus. Do I look like a lion sometimes? Do I look like a lamb sometimes? When, when, I, am, when I am focused and fiery, is, is it out of love and out of sheer uh, focus on where I'm going on his mission and then at times, am I willing to lay down everything I have for my neighbor? 
It's this crazy contrast that Jesus modeled and expects it out of us. Every Sunday, we, we uh, break out bread and juice. We do it because he asked us to. And we'll get to talk about this a lot next week. I can't wait. So if you're at home and next week, I, w- I would love for you to prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper if you're staying at home next week. If you'd like, we'll deliver it to your house. You just fill out a communication card online. You're like, I'd love to have a couple, uh, couple cups of juice and bread, and we'll bring it to your house so that you could actually do communion at your house because it's that big of a deal to us that we celebrate a Savior who shows himself at the Lord's Supper as a lamb, but he was ferocious in his death. And so every Sunday, the church for a couple thousand years has been, been celebrating that. I want you to celebrate. Even if you don't feel like you can be in person, yeah, that's, that's fine. We'll bring it to you. But be prepared for that next week. That'll be part two of this uh, little series we're doing called Good News. Let me pray for you. I, I'm always humbled by reading your word, Lord, because... I'm simple, and uh, you are great. So I know your capabilities just from experience, that you can take your word and make any part of it jump off the page and convict a man or woman or child's heart. So I trust that you would take your word today and do that. You would do your work. I'm also uh, always humble because I know not know people because I am one. And I know when I hear your word or one of your people, sometimes I, I wall off a little section of my heart and I really don't want your word or a person to cut into that area of me. And I, every time I open your word, Lord, I... I want you to do that with me. I, I, I do and I don't. I hide from it and I want you to cut in there and fix it. So I pray that for the folks taking this in, that you would find a way through the walls in their heart and get to the depth of who they are and bring peace there by explaining yourself. As we walk this planet in kind of an interesting time and in most of our lives, uh, We really do want to look like you, Jesus. Remind us when we need to lay our stuff down, keep our mouth shut like a lamb. And then remind us when we need to speak up like a lion and stand up for your truths. We need help in that way in Jesus' name. Amen.